0: Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Giselle Donnelly, and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by Yulia Georgia with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington Universities, and Dali
1: Baraj, also with AI.
0: On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that have emerged along the line that runs from the Baltic to the Black Sea, what we call the Eastern Front, and why those are important to the United States. On today's episode, the three of us are going to talk about the prospect of NATO membership for Ukraine, the upcoming NATO summit, at which this will be a central discussion, and And more broadly about how to secure the Eastern Front over the long haul. If you enjoy our discussion, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yulia, let me start with you. Why don't you frame the the debate for us and then we'll start... Swatting at one another. Yes, Miss NATO
2: here. <laughs> um, I just uh I think it is um very interesting how the NATO Secretary General has obviously coordinated um his visits, um first visits to Kiev with our podcast today. But beyond jokes, he was there to make uh, statements that obviously given membership complications, etc., um have to stay very vague. But nevertheless, he did say in so many words that we have a quorum of all NATO member states that want to see Ukraine as a member of NATO at some point, of course. Um, And so now the question, I think, is what does that mean? Especially as we're looking, he pointed to that too, to the Vilnius um, summit of NATO coming up in um, a few weeks, really. And... Of course, the issue of NATO membership for Ukraine is on the table in a way that we really haven't seen yet because it's a country at war and before we had the taboo. And we see a lot of people, I think, weighing in on either side, not with a lot of coherent arguments. Um, So I guess our attempt today is to try to make the discussion more coherent, I think, along a few lines One is, what can be offered right now in the next few months? Two, how can we think about NATO membership for Ukraine in this sort of unprecedented framework? And isn't it time to reform NATO membership and NATO accession process anyway? Because we're not in the post-Cold War era anymore. And three, how can we think about reforming NATO defense and deterrence overall so that we can reduce the long-term costs and make deterrence more credible. How does that sound to all of you?
0: That sounds like a, a long list of uh, topics. But you're certainly right to point out that uh, Secretary General Stoltenberg did what we finally have been urging him to do. So let's not embarrass him in public. Dalabor, what's your take? So I, I
1: think the, the question really is about what what sort of shape and form Ukraine's accession should should take. I mean, I haven't seen many, haven't heard many voices advocating for Ukraine to, you know, join while Ukraine is still waging war and defending itself in the east and sort of bringing the alliance into the into the war itself. I think the 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 sort of the real dividing line li- runs between people who say, well, you know, we should bring in Ukraine at some point after it, you know, after the war and after it sort of jumps through all the hoops. And we don't really know when that's going to be, and you know, in a way that enables those politicians to sort of kick the can down the road. And people who say that it is imperative that, as part of whatever peace settlement comes out of the war, there be credible security guarantees given to Ukraine in the form of, you know, NATO membership or something similar to to NATO membership. And and I think we would like to make the argument for why the latter approach should be undertaken, why it's really important, and why you're not going to sort of secure Ukraine, even in the case of a Russian defeat, without giving it some sort of tangible, concrete, credible security guarantees like NATO membership.
0: Yeah, I I would offer that a better historical analogy for the current moment is not The NATO expansion of the 1990s and early 2000s, but the period in 1940 and 1941, uh, where the American and British alliance was formed in all but name, but certainly in a way that allowed Great Britain to win the Battle of Britain uh, and to defend itself and remain the uh, important outpost that it was for success in World War II. So that would put you know, the actual pressing need, security and military needs of the moment ahead of, although there was also the Atlantic Charter, which I think would be having an analogous statement of principle that again was responsible, responsive, excuse me, to the current moment. You know, maybe a renewal or an update of a statement of principles like that would help to shape the broader political framework and redefine what the alliances or, or what European security is for and should look like. So uh, it. it in some ways, it would be much better if we could set aside um, the things that we think we learned during the first era of NATO expansion uh, and you know, look to that earlier moment when America really, really became committed to European peace and security.
1: And there's also another uh, precedent for whatever arrangements we made with Ukraine that is not related to the post-Cold War enlargements, which is the ongoing enlargement with Finland and Sweden, which were not asked to jump through the usual bureaucratic hoops and go through a lengthy process. It was just sort of decided that they would become members. And and it was a sort of act of, you know, sort of political leadership and bonding to the sort of conditions on the ground. And, and I think we have to be sort of open-minded enough to, to sort of allow for that contingency in, in, in Ukraine's case at the minimum.
2: Yeah, so that means, I think, that we should leave behind the calls that I do see now, particularly on the other side of the Atlantic in Europe, in the context of both NATO and EU, oh, we should have them go through the bureaucratic process, are they ready are they interoperable? They are not. And so um, then this is a good excuse. I think this should be, maybe we. it's worth stating that I think we have a quorum here that this should be dropped and we should be considering the practical implications of what kind of territory, what kind of security guarantees, how we can go about this and how we can think about it in a cost efficient way in terms of ensuring Europe whole and free and European security with burden sharing and coming closer to the reality that I know a lot of Europeans want to look away from that we also not just, obviously the Ukrainians are helping us keep the Russians out, that should be obvious, but that we also should start training and understanding and knowing how to fight Russians if push comes to shove. I know that NATO until now has been trying so hard through political leaders to not NATO-wise the war, but I don't see the Vilnius summing coming up without uh, with, with avoiding that in the end. As Stoltenberg said, said today, if we are to talk about security guarantees, long-term military, aid commitment and long term training um, commitment to Ukraine, that means that actually we are going to formally NATOize the war.
0: Well, or at least NATOize the question of Eastern European security, um, which will, you know, which in some ways predates the war and will certainly be there. It won't go away regardless of the outcome uh, of the war. I think it was also the reason to start talking about this too is to start, you know, cajoling, pummeling, <laughs> bribing, whatever. It will be necessary to bring along old NATO, if we can use that Don Rumsfeld era term, you know. <laughs> Manuel Macron remains a sort of uh, Gaullist in behavior. If not in uh, in policy, you know, the Germans, this is going to make the Germans nervous. But we do have a great opportunity in alignment with um, Eastern European states and particularly Poland. You know, people who are willing to provide the kind of burden sharing, meaning sharing the risks. Maybe that's a better way to look at it. And at least in the case of Poland are making huge investments uh, in their military. Having an army like that and a similar military in Ukraine, which is far from impossible, would be the most cost effective form of, you know, alliance security that one could imagine.
1: I mean, the, the argument should be fairly straightforward. I mean, if you remember before the war, the sort of enlargement skeptical narrative was encapsulated by Tucker Carlson's question of why should his son go and fight for Montenegro? If you Remember back in 2018 2019 and, and and so there's this sort of idea that you know he could say that about any any country obviously but but I mean the the, the, the sense that some people have is that by enlarging NATO we are sort of adding liabilities uh, to our balance sheet in a way and and and, and make, making us as more vulnerable to sort of future conflicts over we you know lands and people we know little about. Whereas the reality is the exact opposite. Like right now, you know, like the war in Ukraine is a is a liability for the entire West. Like it's something we have to deal with that sort of preoccupies policymakers 24/7. And it happened precisely because Ukraine never was taken into the alliance and was never given credible security guarantees. And and, and there was never sort of deterrence set up in a way that would prevent this war. And it's, it's really like what we should be doing is, is to explain to people that if you want to see fewer situations like the one we currently see in Ukraine, we should be very forceful in bringing countries into the alliance, like-minded countries that that would otherwise be vulnerable to to Russian aggression.
2: Yeah, like-minded and that are are willing and able um, because that's something that I think is worth highlighting that really sets Ukraine apart from other countries that perhaps are like-minded but not as like minded, not as willing, and not as able. And it is about costs, obviously. Um, if we are to think about productively, constructively think about NATOizing support for Ukraine in the long term, um, bringing together and developing in Vilnius a plan for NATO, for feasible NATO membership, um, then we can easily make the argument that the costs will be far less. Because this would actually avoid um, active conflict. And one more thing to bring onto here in sort of the, the broad arguments that I think gets dropped, and I think we should really talk about this, is what kind of precedent does this set if we are pushing um, Ukraine membership aside in the context of nuclear coercion, right? NATO is the only nuclear alliance, and it is a defensive by default alliance because of these um, reasons. If we are setting a precedent in which Russia or anybody else can say you will not be joining because we can threaten you with um, nuclear war, Then, really, in the medium to long term, I don't see the alliance as being legitimate and valid and credible. Going back to Biden's very good statement that he keeps repeating, not one inch, this statement um, to me is a political one. We don't know if the next US president will be so staunch on not one inch. So, how can we think about an alliance that is functioning and is credible in the medium and long term? and does not give in to nuclear coercion um, by Russia?
0: I mean, look, I think it's worth the two things, and that is thinking more clearly about the relationship um, between civilian r- political reform and economic reform and all those other uh, excuses that have been held out as uh, you know, roadblocks to more uh, rapid expansion, more security-focused expansion. And this nuclear question, look, NATO was created in the face very early on of a, a, an open Soviet nuclear threat. And it was expanded in the face of Soviet nuclear threats. So we should already have crossed that bridge. You know, the Russian nuclear threat exists and it is something that we must take into account. But it's always, I mean, you know, our past experiences should suggest that this is actually a reason to solidify alliances, to prevent the use of nuclear threats and prevent nuclear coercion, short of of nuclear use. And then finally, I would say, you know, by this point in the Ukraine war, the Russian nuclear threat... Must have lost much of its credibility. Vladimir Putin has come close to, you know, wrecking his conventional force uh, in the pursuit of his Ukraine dream, um, and continue, obviously he continues to rattle the nuclear saber. But it doesn't, it hasn't prevented us from doing anything that we want to do. You know, we have been self-deterred, not actually deterred by Russian actions. So, you know, again, we just need to almost turn the telescope around and look at things from a correct perspective. And as Delabor has said, the, the path forward should be challenging, but not complex.
2: So then, if we are to convince that some of these arguments um, that have been discussed before the full-scale invasion and after about technicalities and reform, etc., should be pushed aside um, or brushed aside, the next question then is the practical one going into Vilnius, um, so short-term. What kind of plans or what kind of options do we have for Ukraine while the conflict is still ongoing? we know we're all waiting for the counteroffensive. We all, or the majority of us, expect that they will be able to gain some, but not all, territory. So, this is a conflict that is likely to drag on. We are hoping, at least I am, that the gains that Ukraine will be making in the spring and summer will convince to de-tabooize the the offensive weapons that um that ukraine has been asking for for such a long time and that this will then um lead ideally to them for for a chance for them to regain all of their territory and first and foremost, be able to control and defend the territory that they have. So that's way beyond Vilnius. What kind of commitments can we think about for NATO in Vilnius when it practical commitments when it comes to supporting Ukraine onto this path? And of course, offering them some kind of an opening at least towards NATO membership eventually?
1: I think there is, uh, you know, the real problem that we are facing in, 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 in the sense that although Secretary Stoltenberg can say that there is an emerging consensus within the alliance that we want to bring in Ukraine at some point, that does not translate to a great deal of enthusiasm among some members to bring in Ukraine at the earliest opportunity once the war is over, let's say, like, you know, looking at the Biden administration, I mean, I don't see them being particularly enthused by the prospect. I think it would be a fairly contentious political fight in the present climate. And the same could be said about France, Germany, you know, whatever number of the old NATO members, if you will, where really future Ukraine membership is seen as a as just another so the question is, you know, what can those actors and countries that see Ukraine's NATO membership as vital to their interests do in response to that? Because, you know, you can imagine the Poles and Lithuanians going to Berlin, going to Paris, going to Washington saying, look, this really matters to us, please make something happen. And you'll have... Secretary Blinken and others nodding in agreement and basically doing nothing. And I think that's like, you know, unless things change dramatically, I think that's where we are headed, frankly, with, with Vilnius. And there'll be some non-committal language coming out of the summit. That wouldn't be good. So so what I think should happen would be should, is, is, is for, like, you know, the Eastern Europeans to try to sort of step up their game a little bit. And I would like them to really try to sort of force the hand of of, of Westerners more explicitly. I mean, I can... So, so a few weeks ago, I wrote this piece on, you know, the making the case for the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which many people took literally and not enough people took seriously. I, you know, I wasn't quite explicitly arguing for the return of an elective monarchy in Eastern Europe, uh, but rather for Eastern Europeans, particularly the Poles, Poles and the Balts, just just being sort of more imaginative and more assertive in, in in the sort of statecraft in the region. You could imagine a situation in which Poles will say, you know, whatever you Germans, you French, you Americans do, we are going to extend our own sort of security guarantees to Ukraine once the war is over. And we are going to form an alliance and we'll come to Ukraine's defense in the future. They could just say that, right? Like it's a question of like, you know, how credible it is, whether they want to do it. But, but that would open a very different conversation within NATO going forward. And I think that would make things possible that would not be possible if Poles just keep asking nicely for Ukraine's NATO membership.
2: It's funny that you say that because this is exactly the scenario Poland um pushed into the corner, the scenario that I've seen. Or developing in several tabletop exercises over the last year, whether that was referring to Ukraine um, in the long term, or refer- referring to invoking Article 5. When push comes to shove, you see exactly that reluctance overall when it comes to representing the alliance, and then it's up to Poland specifically because of more military might to pu- to say. Well, if you're not going to move, we are going to, in one way or another, move individually, and that then triggers a nature response.
0: If uh, to or offer a, a little bit more precise focus on this, uh, um, the subject it seems to me should be, or the the goal should be to begin as soon as possible, and now, or even just announced that the goal is to replenish and enlarge Ukrainian capacities for a second counteroffensive within the calendar year. I mean, the campaigning season, you know, will come to a pause at some point. When the mud comes back in the fall. But being able to deliver a second substantial blow to the Russian positions in Ukraine really could make a, a huge difference, even if the Ukrainians only gain. Some limited successes in the pending or, or in the next months or weeks or whenever uh, you know the long storied counteroffensive begins. so making that ne- not worrying so much about or framing the long term question in terms of what do we do immediately to make sure that the momentum is uh, continuous the you know, again, regardless of the tactical outcome, this is going to be a real struggle for the Russian army to defend um, even the you know, trench lines and fortifications that they've made. They've squandered a huge amount of manpower in Bakhmut in, uh, this year, and even if it's just Wagnerites, uh, you know, they're just running out of uh, Schlitz or Bud Light or whatever you like these days. And again, this is achievable. If you start now to, and you could transfer another country couple hundred tanks and blah, blah, blah and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Some more artillery um, through the Polish military or just, you know, wherever you can find some things. I I noted one of the things that I really know the last couple days that the South Koreans made noises about supplying the Ukrainians. That's like hugely important. They're a great source of advanced weaponry that they currently have in their stocks, but also have, you know, warm production lines for frontline systems. So, uh, you know, rallying the Western world considered strategically for the purpose of giving Ukraine a second punch capability, I think would be appropriate and a a really good use of, you know, everybody's political uh, wasta. (laughs) (laughs) at Vilnius and and afterward.
2: I think you don't even have to, if you cannot find NATO consensus on that kind of specific language, second counteroffensive, I think one can even make it more abstract, but it would really feed into the issue that we now have, because we keep... Biden and Schultz and all these others keep saying for as long as it takes. How about living up to that with a NATO commitment in Vilnius to say, we are going to ensure continuous ammunition production, say, not even weapon systems, but ammunition production and training, because we know that that's a shortfall too, um, in the long run, for Ukraine as part of the commitment of of the alliance members individually if you cannot find um, consensus for the language of the alliance overall so that that would send the message for not hiding and pushing then ukraine into peace negotiations when they've only achieved as much as they could with the weapons that we've given them in the calendar year in the summer one and two it would uh, demolish the narrative of um, that we have now internalized in the west well putin is in for the long run, time is on his side because he knows he's counting on us decommitting, uncommitting from Ukraine with this kind of message, this kind of commitment in Vilnius for ammunition, for training, smaller things. This would send a very clear message to the Kremlin no matter how much cannon fodder you're throwing at this, um, we're not going to abandon Ukraine because this is a matter of essential European security.
0: Well, so how about replacing as long as it takes with as fast as we can. Time is often the most precious resource in any war. And just saying we're going to put the pedal down would be, uh, you know, almost the best thing we could do.
1: So if I, if I may, Julia, I, you know, I think what you propose is sensible, but to me that's, let's that's sort of necessary, but not a sufficient condition for, for, for victory. And I would almost, you know, without sort of going full realist, uh, when it comes to sort of helping Ukraine today and now, sort of like move, move away from from sort of you know, trying to tweak the language to really looking at what governments do rather than what they say, and and what the Ukrainians really need is, is is for us to sort of change this approach through which we just give you know little tranches of assistance to the Ukrainians every two months instead of front loading you know whatever we can get them now. I mean I don't need you know I don't need any language about second offensive coming out of Vilnius. I want, you know, this administration to really sort of, you know, throw all the fighter jets and all the, you know, rusty tanks they can find at the problem and just sort of do it quickly. And and, and I, I don't know like if, if that mindset is going to change. Again, like, you know, could Eastern Europeans force the issue somehow in, 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 in Vilnius? Maybe, maybe, but like they I'm pretty sure they've been sort of raising this since the beginning
0: well but they could they could uh, accelerate the, the the polls have received a hundred and some m1s uh, you know unless there's you know something in the contract that Joe Biden has to approve a lend lease program or something like that There are capabilities, I mean, uh, and and I would think from a Polish point of view, uh, you know, keeping the the, the pressure on in a way that that leads to a sooner rather than a later success would have high strategic value. I think second counteroffensive is is possibly not the greatest, uh, you know, selling point. Uh, So it might... Require a different framing, but I think that's what it comes down. To. I mean, I, the point I intend to make is that the situation prior, or post, or after um, a Ukrainian counteroffensive is, is a, a critical time politically and strategically. But making sure that there is, um, you know, um, either a replenishment or an increase in Ukrainian capacities to keep the momentum, I and mean, they're going to pay a big price to gain some momentum, and the. the The real question will be how much breathing space will the Russians have to reconstitute versus uh, how much capacity um, well the Ukrainians have to exploit whatever successes they win. and again, you can see the opportunity coming as it did last year uh, in the late fall early winter and we can get there from here.
2: So then to conclude, how about for as long as it takes to regain all territory and as fast as possible?
0: I'd say let's put it as fast as possible okay <laughs> let's put the, let's put the urgency up front. <laughs> I hope I hope Secretary Stoltenberg and everybody else is listening because uh, you know if they would just do what we say things would turn out much better. All right then, there you have it. So for me, Giselle Donnelly, thank you for listening to the Eastern Front and for my colleagues, Julia Jozha and Naliburohats. And- our podcast is dedicated to the security challenges that exist along the line from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website at AEI.org or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also be in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod all one word. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review us. Thanks for joining us. I want to end quickly with a preview of one of next week's episodes. We'll be joined again by uh, General Ben Hodges, a former commander of U.S. Army Europe, and we'll be talking in greater detail uh, about Ukrainian options for this counteroffensive. So you won't want to miss that one. So see you next time.